Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. Today on American Indian Airwaves, understanding Lahaina before and after the Lahaina Fire and the Hawaiian Nation's self-determination for recovery and healing from U.S. imperialism. Afterwards, settler cannabis from gold rush to green rush in indigenous Northern California. We look at the environmental consequences of the cannabis cultivation in California from indigenous voices, experiences, and histories, and the refusal of controlling lands for profit. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Today on American Indian Airwaves, in our first segment, we go to the Hawaiian Nation, to Lahaina, as we speak with cultural ethnographer and resource specialist, Kepa Mele, who is raised on the islands of Oahu and Lahaina. Marcus Lopez, executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, and myself speak with him on the living histories of what most people know as Lahaina, the recent Lahaina fires of August 8th, settler colonialism and its violence, and what it means moving forward for the Hawaiian nation in their acts of self-determination in recovery and healing and more. We start today's interview asking Keppa to share with us a brief history of what we know as Lahaina in the Hawaiian nation. Mahalo. I understand, and thank you folks so much, you know, for thinking of Lanai, excuse me, Lahaina, forgive me. I was just on a Lanai call, and, uh, uh, but thinking of, which is right across from Lahaina, and all of the people that helped to raise me are all connected to Lahaina. But, you know, just real quickly, you know, there, this beautiful expression uh, in, in our native language, you know, that Kupuna had so much love, these ancestors, elders had so much love for, for their aina, that biocultural landscape. They describe, they describe um, Lahaina as a, as a longhouse, you know, a, a place of, of shelter, uh, under the, the the growth of the breadfruit trees, and and that that from one boundary to the next, it is beloved and caressed by the winds. And you know, it just goes on and speaks about. So you know, when we look at tradition, the lahaina that any of you have seen in modern times is not the lahaina that that our ancestors, that Hawaiian ancestors, speak of. It was. As is the case, you know, see, here's the thing. 
Aina, land, our living environment, the biocultural landscape, from the heavens to the depths of the sea, everything is related. It's all family. And Kanaka, Hawaiians, are the youngest siblings in this family of, of creation. So it was always the Hawaiian, the Kanaka uh, perspective. You know, you aloha, you, you love, you respect you care for this living environment, and it will care for you in return. And that's, that's the foundation of how Kupuna, the ancestors and elder Hawaiians, lived in Lahaina. It was irrigated by streams that flowed from the mountains, among them Kanaha, Kahoma, Kauaula, the uh, Waine'e, these, these important streams that gave life, uh, water, to, to the land, and a land that is watered, in Hawaiian perspective, is a rich, a wealthy land, not monetarily, but the wealth was in the ability to sustain oneself and not eke out an existence, but to actually live fully the food that they needed. You know, you look at the photographs and the imagery coming out of Lahaina, particularly now after August 8th, and the, the preventable wildfires because see with that there have been 20 years of regular wildfires in the region but no one has stepped forward to better manage the land or to Im insist on restoration of waterways and the life and well-being so when kupuna when the ancestors the poikahiko when they lived in lahaina it was very different than today and there is this movement, which is why the voice of natives of Lahaina, those families who were multi-generational residents, native Hawaiian residents, their voice is so important and really should be heard. They're going to be the ones that are fighting for, advocating for pono, righteousness, goodness on the land. And sorry, I'm going to go with one more thing. This Hawaiian idea... And I'm going to give you the Hawaiian, and then I will tell you the English. But kupuna have these wonderful sayings, these instructive sayings, that are meant to be passed down generation to generation to inform people about their relationship with one another, with their living environment, with their gods, goddesses. You know, and, and it's the, the saying in, in Hawaiian is, Hana ino kalima, ai ino kawaha. When the hands do dirty or defiling work, the mouth will have defiled or dirty food to eat. And what we saw on August 8th and just the total confusion of, of that tragedy, is, it's the epitome of that. Dirty work, defiling work, the land was allowed to be transferred from a place of royal and religious prominence in the Maui group of islands, which are Maui, Kaolave, Lanai, and Molokai. After Western contact, the first thing that, you know, the early missionaries and, and the foreign residents saw was the opportunity to extract resources with no aloha, no care about what would happen tomorrow. It was just, it was really financial, it was economic extract and take as much as you can. And in 1999, when Pioneer Mill closed, they had had all their fun, 
they'd made all the, the owners of the companies had made all their money. You know, and this goes back to the 1860s. They then walked away and they left the headache for this generation today. So, sorry, uh, Marcus, I don't mean to, to ramble on, but I think we've touched on a part of that question, a very different landscape, one that was sheltered under the breadfruit trees with groves of uh, patches, the, the irrigated taro lands, uh, clumps of dryland crops, and then, of course, the whole thing with the fisheries, you know. This is a, a land that's sustained. And think about Hawaii, isolated from Hawaii to Ni'ihau. But at that time, there were close to a million people living sustainably in these islands. There are very few stories, unless it is retribution of the gods and goddesses for human, m- human misbehavior, if that's a word, uh, they, they lived sustainably. They, they, they had a, a bountiful life, you know. No one was hungry. There were no famines, no droughts until, or as I said, unless, like the reason that Lahaina is sometimes called the cruel or almost uh, destructive sun, uh, there was a chief in antiquity who disrespected the people, the gods, the natural resources, and finally his arrogance uh, led to, to a period of famine on Maui. And when he died, the famine ended, and his bones are nakeke naivi o hua ikala, rattling are the bones of hua, this chief in the sun, because that was the great desecration. And sadly, another desecration for Ivi, for, for ancestral remains, was even exposing them to the sun or burning them. And just look at what's happened in Lahaina now. Talk about not just, you know, the loss of present day, but how about the desecration of those ancestral remains that have been in the ground? So plenty to talk about and never enough time. And that's why Onaunda and I do the ethnographic work that we do. We rely first. You know, by 1850s, just as a sidebar, Hawaiians, the kingdom of Hawaii, was one of the most literate nations on earth. In their own language, they wrote, they recorded history, they understood, uh, they had an exposure to global. Uh, there, were, there were close to 100 Hawaiian language newspapers between 1832 and 1948. 75 to 80% of the Hawaiian population in 1850 could read and write in their own language. In America, the Caucasian people, was less than 50% could read and write in their own language. So, you know, while that was a new thing, Hawaiians, the, the Hawaiian mind was very adept and quick to pick up, you know, these changes, as is expressed by David Malo in the introduction to uh, the website that we've developed to try and help tell some of the stories of Lahaina, where Malo, one of the preeminent Hawaiian historians, in 1837, writes warning the high chiefs and chiefesses, we better be, watch out because these foreigners are coming in like big fish, and as the waves wash them in, they're going to consume all the little fish, which were the Hawaiians, you know? And Malo's uh, prophecy, I could say, actually came true, you know? So sorry, I'm going to stop for now. 
Marcus, if you get question or you want a further direction, go ahead and we'll go from there. Kepa, what about the uh, historical legacy of the mission system and the 1867 Safety Committee? So, until 1778, when Captain Cook stumbled upon, he did not discover them. Discovery happened at least a thousand years prior to Captain Cook's accidental uh, stumbling upon the Hawaiian Islands uh, in 1778. But by 1778, and forgive me, I'm going to say this, and if this is inappropriate for your audience, I ask your forgiveness. The first gift that Captain Cook and his crew gave to the Hawaiian people was CLAP, the Kiss of the Gods, which by the time they returned in 1779 had spread across the islands. And by, in 1803-04, a pan, you know, pandemics, epidemics are nothing new for Hawaiian people. We went from a population, in 50 years, we went from a population of close to a million to around 70,000 people. When a group of missionary children and their cronies, all of them Caucasian, uh, deposed the queen and replaced the constitutional monarchy of the Hawaiian Islands. When they deposed Queen Liuokalani on January 17, 1893, uh, these were the children, in many cases, of the missionaries. And, um, boy, they came to do good, and they ended up doing really well, at least financially. So let's talk a little bit about what happens. The population in 1893 was 40,000 Hawaiians. They honestly believed that all Hawaiians were going to die out, similarly to some of the native peoples, say, in the West Coast, California, where, you know, you ended up with a handful, five, ten, you know, uh, members representative of a particular indigenous community. Hawaiians were on the same path, but Hawaiians were great adopters. Many married in mixed marriages. They, while, so let's go, I'm going to go back to 1823 with the establishment of the mission station. The first thing that they wanted to do was Richardson and uh, Bingham, you know, Stewart, uh, a group of them. The first thing they wanted to do was figure out a way to build an economy, their economy, not a Hawaiian one. And they found Hawaiians. Uh, and you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Kepa Mele, who is a cultural ethnographer and resource specialist. We're speaking on the living histories of what we know as Lahaina and the Hawaiian nations, right for self-determination in recovery and healing. And now back to the interview. In 2003, the University of Hawaii sent Onaun and I to the East Coast, and we digitized almost 200,000 records that had been written from the mission stations in the Hawaiian Islands from 1820 up till the early 1900s that had been sent as letter communications back to the Boston secretary. And the the racism, I don't see it. You know, they came professing the words aloha keakua, God is love, but they they didn't seem to live it in the most case. In fact, one of the 
worse, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but was a guy named Sheldon Dibble at Lahaina Luna, which uh, his comment was, you know, as I walk over the mountain from Lahaina to Wailuku, I'm impressed by the, the grandeur of God's creation, and my Hawaiian retainers only look to see what's the next berry they can grub from. And that was just such BS, you know, and that set the foundation for the entire Hawaiian relationship with foreigners. They chose to demonize Hawaiian beliefs, customs, practices. The only good Hawaiian was one, in their opinion, was one that was educated in a Western system. And look at what that Western education has done even today. The, the reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, the uh, brick-and-mortar school is failing not just Hawaiians, but nationally, you know, particularly indigenous people. So there was this whole dismantling of pride and of cultural identity. So we mentioned earlier uh, David Malo, one of the three preeminent Native Hawaiian historians who was among the early converts to the Christian mission, but in, by 1837, a few years before he passed away, warned, you know, the ships of foreigners have come up, smart people have arrived from great countries that we've never seen before, and we're just living in a small country. They desire to eat us up. That is how it is with large nations. They consume all the small nations of the earth. This is David Malo to our highest ali'i in 1837. Well, in the 1860s, Pioneer Mill is established primarily by missionary and other American, and other, a lot of them were Southerners uh, of the sugar plantation. So they already came in with a with a poisoned attitude towards people that weren't, uh, didn't look just like them. But in 1867, a small group of Native Hawaiians in Lahaina organized, and they basically reviewed the history of what had happened. And, you know, they, they talk about what is happening in Lahaina. Now there are famines where there were never famines in our history. They, they look at the sugar plantations as being uh, the source. They burn up the food of the Kalo lands. Uh, the lo'i and dry, lo'i or wetland terraces and dryland sweet potato fields of Lahaina are all but turned over to planting cane, which means that there was nothing for the Hawaiians to eat. So it immediately required them to become a part of an econom economic system, but because it wasn't their style of working, you know, go to go to work and get beaten, yelled at, and paid, you know, three cents a day or whatever it was, they started importing uh, non-white immigrant labor forces to, to displace Hawaiian. You know, I want to just look at, you know, anyway, I'm just sorry, I'm just, there, there's just, this letter to me that we shared on our website, you know, the item number four in, in the, the listing says lack of careful thought by people of the living conditions. You know, they, they just say, how, how can we continue to let this happen? You know, they warned that the plantation would be the demise of the land and the people. And in 1999, when Pioneer Mill closed down, we'd already become 40 years prior to that what many considered to be an illegal state, stolen kingdom, then annexed in 1898. Uh, by the way, a, a law was passed in 1896 that made it all but illegal 
to speak Hawaiian in public settings or to teach it in school, which is just bizarre. Um, and fortunately, Hawaiians kept writing, and they kept speaking for, for quite a while. And so the language is, is uh, surviving and experiencing resurgence. But, you know, uh, these gentlemen urged, you know, that we should fill the native lands with all manner of foods. One of the writers, Kahude Leo, says, when I was about nine years old, about the year 1846, he says, I can't forget this, that what Lahaina was like at that time. This gentleman, who was also a judge, says, by my recollections, Lahaina was not a town. It was a food garden for the island of Maui. How amazing, because there were, where, where the houses stood, there were planted mounds of sweet potato, taro, bananas, squash, sugarcane, yams, these things that kept the famine away from the land. If Lahaina could once again be like that, which is described above, the famines that they were experiencing already in 1867 would end. Well, we could say the same story if the state had imposed upon Pioneer Mill Company, you've desecrated this landscape, you've radically altered it, you've stolen the water and are now putting it into resorts and into gated community homes that everyone must, of course, have a, a pool and whatever they call those over-flooding uh, reflecting ponds and all this other stuff, you know, uh, little waterfalls and stuff like that. If the water would be returned to the streams, we would find with hand-in-hand -hand restoration, planting of native endemic indigenous Hawaiian species, a cooling of the land, a restoration of the greenery, and we would lose the fires. As I mentioned earlier, and forgive me if I've rambled on a bit, but, you know, the really big thing here is that fire is not new since the close of the plantation in 99. Nearly every year there have been multiple fires. No one has addressed the cause. Weed vegetation, grasslands, which are not native to Hawaii, unlike, say, the indigenous peoples of the continent, who were ma'a, used to a grassland environment. Our environment in Hawaii was very, very different. So, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to just step back, listen to the voices of the ancestors, and then plan, and this is why it's important to have the Hawaiians of Lahaina be a part of and direct the discussions. Marcus, may I share one other little thing about one of the names of Lahaina? Yes. Okay. So Lahaina itself is actually a Western misnomer. Lahaina uh, as it's, if it's pronounced in that way, which means cruel or relentless sun, basically, it is not a town. Howleys, Caucasians did that. The native name of the area that the largest, the main area that burned, the native name was Lele, which is a de de detached, it's, it's kind of a, a separate, independent little land unto itself because it was so verdant and so rich. So the poetic, from prior to Western contact, the poetic saying, a description was, Kamalu ulu olele. 
lele, which is under the shade, the canopy of the spreading breadfruit trees, ulu, one of the primary, the major source of food for Hawaiians across the islands. Well, you know, one of the things that we find so peculiar about the outcry today among many people, and not meant to offend anyone, but people are concerned about this banyan tree that was planted reportedly in 1873 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the missionaries' occupation and demonization of Hawaiians. Underneath it were the grounds of a home of the kings of Maui, and then for a time, Kamehameha I and his son. And then, you know, so now everyone's got this thing about, you know, oh, the poor banyan tree, let's rescue it. Well, it's an introduction from uh, India, and I understand the, the significance, the value of it, but it should not be foremost. It's secondary. There's a Hawaiian expression, you know, the English side of it says, you know, Hawaiian knowledge is first. When we're talking with college uh, academics, uh, Hawaiians that are in, in getting engaged in academia, that Hawaiian knowledge is first. The academic is second. Let's use the Hawaiian to inform the academic and to create a better place, one that is more culturally respectful. So Onauna's cousin, uh, Jen Kamahoi Mather, was so funny this morning. She posted, you know, it's not Kamalu, Kamalu Banyan Olele. It's not uh, Lele under the shade of the Banyan tree. It was really Kamalu Ulu under the groves of breadfruit, which sustained the population. The Banyan simply provides shelter for more giga, knick-knack salespeople, you know, and most of whom are not Hawaiian. Anyway, sorry, I don't mean to ramble on. Tepo, why don't you talk about this colonization and control of Vai water and the Mukula Island or the pond? Yes, yes, okay, thank you. So, Vai, the Hawaiian word for water is W-A-I, so it's not hoi, but wai. The Hawaiian word for wealth, and I alluded to this earlier, is wai wai, because when you had water, wai okeola, waters of life, you had wealth, you had everything you needed, fresh water, potable water, lahaina and the lele, town, where lahaina town is now, lele, was well watered and irrigated. And one of the most significant of those watered places was a pond, a fish pond, called Loko Mokuhinihinia. And within that large loko, there was an island called Mokuula. Mokuula was the home of a goddess of water forms. Hawaiians believed that and continue to believe, I don't mean to put it past tense, many Hawaiians continue to believe that our living environment is the embodiment of the gods and goddesses' creative forces of nature. Moku'ula was the home of Kihawahine, or Kihanuilulu Moku, and she was so sacred, so important in Hawaiian lore, that chiefs who sought success in their rule uh, to be 
wise and good rulers like Kaka'i and Kaka'alaneo uh, in antiquity or Kama uh, in, uh, later. And then uh, even in, in, in battle, they would go to Moku'ula. They would pray and make offerings that Kihawahine would imbue them with the power and the, the wisdom needed to accomplish their desired tasks. So here's the killer, and this just shows you, not only did Pioneer Mill continue to consume every drop of water they could, and if you visit the website, you'll see some examples of fire damage in like 2006, 7, and of a remnant water flow in one of the major uh, streams, Kauaula, but it's all tapped off to go to high-end houses and resorts, you know, for economic gain, not for cultural or, or landscape, uh, cultural, biocultural landscape well-being. In 1918, well, 1917, the presidentially appointed territorial governor and the land commissioner agreed. Well, here's, here's a great example, and I don't know if it's happened among your people, but Native peoples tend to look at water and wetlands as extremely rich and a viable and integral part of the whole living environment of our biocultural landscape. Haoles or Caucasians looked at them as wastelands. And in fact, they dis- developed in, in America the Bureau of Reclamation because it was like, what, you lost it? It was never lost. It always served uh, a health. It was a thermometer, a, a barometer of the health and well-being of the land. If the water flows, if the fish are good, if the akua, the, the deity, the gods and goddesses are well, the people are well also. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Kepa Mele, who is a cultural ethnographer and resource specialist. We're speaking on the living histories of what we know as Lahaina and the Hawaiian nations right for self-determination in recovery and healing. And now back to the interview. So in 1917, you know, this presidentially appointed governor and the land commissioner decide, yeah, Maui County, we're going to convey this crown land, this government land to you, which is the fish pond of Mokuhinia and the little islet, the sacred islet, the home of the goddess and the home of Kamehameha III, his sister Nahiana and the rulers of the Hawaiian kingdom, which is an anomaly because it was a multiple kingdom prior to Kamehameha's battles of unification, uh, which really came to a close by 1802-03. And I left out uh, an important comment uh, about the 1803-04 reference that I mentioned earlier, where in one year's time, 200,000 Hawaiians across the islands died because of an introduced disease. That's how quickly it happened. 200,000 Hawaiians in one year, and it's believed to have been uh, brought in on Western sailing ships, Asiatic cholera. So let's come back to Moku'ula and Loko Moku'hinia, to this sacred landscape, so sacred that no one would just step on it. You pule, you offer prayer first, that you have to have the right genealogy to be able to approach the deity, and and the wahipana, that sacred storied landscape. Well, 
the county receives deed to these two sacred, highly sacred places, and they decide to fill it in and build a baseball field. Yippee, you know. But that was because the plantation had already drained great deals of water out of the landscape, really stretching something like 15 miles across the district. Anyone that was native living on the landscape, growing taro, eating small freshwater stream fish, we didn't have trout and things like, you know, many people on the mainland or in the continent have, but we had oopu, small gobi fish, and those too were the body forms of deity, of goddesses and god beings. All of this just was disappearing, and it was all tied to greed, basically, plantation corporate destruction of, of, of landscape. So I cannot, and Onauna, I don't know if you hear tapping in the background, but Onauna is actually beating Papa because we, we help, bark, native bark cloth, we help uh, with the perpetuation of cultural practices and the returning of human uh, kupuna remains to, to the earth and so that have been disturbed. So, you know, we've got this problem going on now, and it, but it, we must hear the voices of those who are directly impacted. And that's why we just put uh, our, the website together to, to let the voices of the ancestors help inform hopefully positive, life-restorative planning today. But we got to be maka'ala, eyes wide open, because those big landowners are actively pursuing avenues to even get more water and to place, displace more Hawaiians. They have uh, the, the errors, the flows, uh, flaws, excuse me, don't end. They haven't ended. Colonialism is alive and well. Kepa, what do we do next? What do we do? We listen to the broad Hawaiian community of Lele and Lahaina, the district, and those who are of the land, whether they have remained on it or not. But there's an old Hawaiian expression, the land is for those who live upon it. They're the ones that have the first voice. It is only after there are none of those voices left to be heard that others who are connected to place you know, so we don't step in and maha'oi, be, be nosy or, or put our, you know, face where it doesn't belong, which is why, you know, we're onaona particularly, and we're kanalua, uh, we, we don't want to make, there are many people in Lahaina who must be heard. And it's going to take time. It's taken us 200 plus years to get to this dismal place and the colonialism, a poor uh, economic-driven abuse and desecration of land, the abuse of culture. Now, you know, if you've got a coconut uh, bra and you're dancing the hula and someone can come and the song is, you know, get a mower and mow that grass skirt off of them, you know, what a crock, you know. But that's the attitude that people have had for 100 plus years. So we need to fix that and get the Kanaka voice and it's happening. That's what's so exciting, you know. But money talk. And so Hawaiians are not a moneyed people for the most part. And they're not interested in money. It's perpetuation of lifestyle, of life way, of relationship with our biocultural landscape, the Lahui, the people of place, you know. Mm. 
And in reality, as an old expression goes, the English version of it is healthy land, healthy people. I've taken it a step further that if the land and people are healthy, guess what? Our communities are healthy also. And if the communities are healthy, we can even have the opportunities for healthy business. But it can't be highly consumptive. They can't just continue to eat it up and spit it out, you know. And then they walk away when they're done, you know. Oh, well, I've had my fun. I've gotten my profit. And then they leave the dregs, the fragments uh, for those people in Lahaina, as we are witnessing now. And that was Kepa Mele, a cultural ethnographer and resource specialist, speaking on the living histories of Lahaina and the Hawaiian nation's right for self-determination in healing and recovery from settler colonialism. For more information on the work that he and others are doing, you can visit the Kumapono Associates website at www.kumupono.com. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. song Seventh Generations by Kupa Aina here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of our program today, I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Caitlin Reed, who is from the Yurok Kupa Oneida Nations and is Assistant Professor of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt. She recently authored a new book titled Settler Cannabis from Gold Rush to Green Rush in Indigenous Northern California. This is the first book to ever cover the environmental consequences of cannabis cultivation in California by foregrounding Indigenous voices, experiences, and in histories. This is Dr. Caitlin Reed on Settler Cannabis from Gold Rush to Green Rush 
in Indigenous Northern California. But for me, the book is really about tracing the historical and ecological dot uh, from the gold rush to the green rush. And the, the reason I took up that project is because as I was starting uh, my graduate school journey, uh, my tribe that I am a member of, the Yurok tribe, uh, was dealing with a lot of uh, large-scale environmental ramifications due to illicit cannabis cultivation. And nobody was really talking about Native people and Indigenous people or tribal sovereignty, right, within the context of cannabis uh, during that time. And so I felt that Indigenous perspectives were largely uh, ignored, right, from a very, very hot button issue at that moment. I'm talking kind of about uh, like the mid-2015 era, era, like 2014 to 2018 primarily, uh, California is like getting ready to legalized recreational cannabis and then kind of putting in place the market infrastructure to do so, um, there wasn't really any talk uh, of tribal nations. Uh, I also really wanted to kind of call attention to, to patterns, specifically kind of through the lens of settler colonial resource extraction. Uh, I write in the book, uh, California Indians have seen the rush uh, pattern play out, and we already know how this story ends, right? And so in 2016 to 2018, right, you have a lot of people who are really, really excited to like come make it rich, right, in the cannabis industry. And we're like, did you not learn? Learn, <laughs> right from the gold rush and I was uh, really struck by a lot of similar parallels uh, between uh, ecological ramifications of cannabis cultivation and previous patterns of resource rushing and so the the first half of the book right I traces us through the gold rush into the timber rush into the fish rush and then it's followed by a critical examination of the back to the land movement mm -hmm. uh, and up here where i am in humboldt county our county really likes to romanticize and uh kind of view the back to the land movement with like a heavy dose of nostalgia but I bought I, the title of that chapter, which I borrow from a, an alum here at Cal Poly Humboldt, uh, Laura Hurwitz, I call that chapter Back to Whose Land, mm. right? Kind of thinking critically about, right, the back to the land movement, um, and which is often associated with environmentalism, right? And anyways, I was thinking about a lot of the similar environmental impacts. And so, whereas in the timber rush, right, you have the Forest Service, like, privatizing a bunch of timberland, suppressing fire, right, leading to catastrophic wildfires that are happening now, right, to forest fragmentation uh, of illicit cannabis cultivation, right? And so we'd see a lot of clear-cutting taking place so that grow sites could be constructed in the hills. We were seeing a lot of water contamination, right, not mercury, uh, as was the case in the mid 18 hundreds in California, uh, but other types of contaminants, right, agricultural products, pesticides, insecticides, a lot of rodenticides, right, and so the, maybe the, the mechanism is a little bit different, right, but the, like, the end result, right, resulting in the contamination of our waterways, for example, right, felt, like, eerily familiar, right, um, and so I was just seeing my tribe have to deal with this as I was starting graduate school, and I was like, nobody's really telling this story.
story. Uh, and so I, I joke in the book that it was never my plan to write a book about weed, uh, but here we are. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, to me, it's, the book isn't like an expose of the cannabis industry, although I do a deep dive of the impacts of cannabis cultivation in the second half of the book. Mm. Really, to me, it's a book about settler colonial resource extraction, right? Whatever ecological crisis right, was, uh, is, was occurring on my ancestral territory would have been the subject of the book. It just so happened to be cannabis, mm. right? And so that's kind of the, the, the broader uh, overview, but really I hope to uh, uh, surprise uh, cannabis enthusiasts with a history of California, uh, perhaps unsuspecting. <laughs> Caitlin, I think you do a really phenomenal job in laying out the settler colonial legacy of compounded violence uh, there in Northern California. And I just want to remind listeners, we're speaking with Caitlin Reed. She is an associate professor of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt. We're speaking with her here on American Indian Airwaves on her brand new book, Settler Cannabis from Gold Rush to Green Rush in Indigenous Northern California. And Caitlin, for our listeners, can you give us a little more of a teaser about the book and your approach to the book and what readers can expect? Uh, so specifically within the context of some of the impacts on cannabis, I... I kind of organized that around three major themes. Uh, the first of which I kind of explore is this notion of land dispossession. And I'm thinking about that really broadly, right? So kind of beyond, right, the refusal of the U.S. Senate to ratify 18 treaties in California in 1851 and 1852, but kind of thinking about dispossession Similarly, though, settler colonialism as something that isn't over, something that isn't complete, right? Mm -hmm. Something that continues to play out on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I look at some of the ways cannabis cultivation, particularly between 2010 and uh, like 2018, uh, really uh, impacted Native people's abilities to access their lands and territories. And so I look at this in several different ways uh, through the... Uh, increase in real estate prices, right, that prevent Native people from being able to uh, come back to homelands or reclaim lands that were taken from them, right, in the previous century, right? Also, uh, uh, ba physical barriers that get imposed on the landscape. A lot of trespass cultivators will uh, construct gates, right, or other infrastructure to, or barriers, right, to prevent tribal peoples from accessing their own territory. And then one of the kind of most insidious uh, forms of dispossession that I examine in the book, which primarily comes through research interviews I did uh, during my field work with uh, tribal employees, but also uh, tribal members and cultural practitioners. Uh, and these were stories of physical violence. Um, and so if you are operating a trespass cultivation site, right, uh, it might it doesn't really matter, right, if the person walking into the grow site is a DEA agent, an FBI agent, right, or maybe an 80-year-old indigenous woman out looking for hazelnut sticks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I heard many, many stories of tribal people uh, being threatened, intimidated, getting a gun stuck in their face, 
right? And so for me, that really was like one of the most striking parallels to this like gold rush violence, right? And as I'm sure your listeners are well aware, during the California gold rush, right, militias were compensated like to hunt native people, right? And so there was an expectation that you could experience violence in your ancestral territory just for being a native person. And here we were at that, um, when I was hearing those stories, I was around 2016, and I was hearing stories of weavers getting a gun pulled on them when they're out gathering, right? Mm. And, and for me, I was like, this is, <laughs> this is absurd, right? Uh, additionally, tribal employees would also face a lot of different barriers. Um, and so I was uh, an intern for my tribal environmental department uh, many years ago now. And uh, as part of that work, uh, our tribal employees have to access remote monitoring stations to get things like air quality data right, or water quality data uh, to monitor the health of our lands and our waters. And often due to the kind of the pop-up of illicit cultivation sites, it would prevent the tribe uh, from being able to even access environmental monitoring stations, Mm. right? And so on the one hand, you know illicit cannabis cultivation is creating environmental impacts and it's simultaneously preventing you from monitoring them, right? And so, so those are a few different examples of the forms of dispossession I talk about. Uh, I have a whole chapter in the book about water. Uh, I kind of dive into the debates on how thirsty the plant is and kind of uh, some of the statewide data uh, offered uh, by cannabis lobbyists about cannabis, uh, water use. Uh, A lot of this discourse tries to say, well, wine uses more or almonds uses more or rice uses more. while statewide data can be helpful in some regards, what it uh, erases is the localized ecological impacts uh, that get experienced in specific watersheds. Not to mention that all agriculture in uh, Central and Southern California relies on a history of dispossession via the creation of the Central Valley Water Project, right? Folks like uh, Willie Bauer Jr. in his book, uh, History of Native California, uh, We Are the Land, he writes that a map of of hydrologic infrastructure in California is a map of indigenous dispossession, right? Uh, and then the final substantive chapter, kind of honing in on cannabis, really focuses on toxics. This looks at a lot of the pollution uh, left behind at grow sites, the issue of cleanup. Uh, one of the, the figures I offer in the text is that uh, in 2008, the Sierra Fund issued a report that estimated there were about 50,000 abandoned mines left over from the gold rush. Uh, about 87% of those have human health or environmental health impacts. And it's like, if we haven't solved that mess, like what makes the state of California think it's equipped to even begin to deal, right, with the, the cleanup necessary uh, for this most recent wave of resource rushing. Um, yeah. And so uh, those are kind of the three kind of major focal points through which I analyze cannabis cultivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for, for folks who don't have a, a clear picture, if you've ever seen the television show Hoarders, uh, that's a, a great visual to kind of imagine uh, what an abandoned cultivation site might look like. <laughs> Caitlin, thank you for that response. And I know when we think of um, the history of the land up there in uh, what people know as Northern California, um, and what I appreciate is you're just not talking about cannabis, even though cannabis um, 
is uh, kind of the recent uh, phenomena, if you will, in biocolonization and in and attempted forms of colonization, but with what comes with the informal and even the formal cannabis industry that you talk about in your book is the kind of herbicides and pesticides that get used, but it's also about water, right? That there's, uh, it, this increases, this industry, um, the green rush, if you will, increases the demand for water, which continues to adversely affect all life. And I was just wondering, maybe you could speak to that in relationship to your book um, as a way to share with our listeners a little bit more about what they can expect to read. Yeah, for sure. I, I think the so one of the, the central kind of uh, theoretical arguments I'm making in the text is uh, that impacts that are exerted against the landscape, against mm-hmm. the water, against the air, right, mm-hmm. are reflected or paralleled in the bodies of indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the primary kind of moments in the text uh, that that really emerges for folks is uh, uh, chapter three kind of hones in on the fish rush. Chapter three is called uh, Salmon is Everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of trace through um, kind of settler colonial impacts on fish relatives to examine the way that that is then felt or experienced in the bodies of indigenous peoples. Uh, and I, um, I, I incorporate some data from an amazing text that folks should check out. Uh, folks can add it to their reading list. It's called Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People mm-hmm. uh, by Kari uh, Norgard and Ron Reed, who is a, a Karuk ceremonial leader. Uh, Kari Norgard is a, a settler scholar and allied scholar. Uh, and they uh, they c- uh, collect some data uh, from families of the Karuk tribe in northwestern California. They're a little bit more uh, inland and north than uh, Yurok folks, but. Um, the the map shows us when uh, the the dams on the Klamath River uh, were constructed, and then uh, we have rates of diabetes in uh, indigenous families of uh, Kruk tribe. And if you look at the map of uh, dam construction, and then you see a map or excuse me a graph of salmon populations and diabetes rates, uh, it is the same exact line, right? And so we can kind of pinpoint this this uh, uh, t- a period of time, right, in the 20th century when the when our river was dammed, right, and then you have salmon populations plummet, and you have uh, diabetes rates of crude families uh, skyrocket, right, and so that line uh, just reflects it, right, and so these are the types of uh, 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 impacts we have seen due to, like, historic water development, for example. Uh, there's a great statistic that Norgard and Reed offer in the text that in uh, uh, 1850, it's estimated that Karuk families ate about 400 pounds of salmon a year. Wow. Uh, as of 2010, the average Karuk person eats less than five pounds of salmon a year, mm-hmm. right? This is likely one of the, the most massive dietary transformations to ever exist, like in the North American continent, right? Uh, but what that means, right, for contemporary concerns about water, 
is that like we have a very keen eye on what's happening with our salmon populations. And so for us, we can't talk about water diversion right, uh, without thinking about potential impacts on salmon because we have seen what have happened to our salmon populations over the past century due to settler colonial violence. Uh, as your listeners may know, our river, the Klamath River, is home to the largest fish kill in American history, right? Uh, when we look at water use for cannabis in northwestern California, there are estimates that uh, in the eel watershed, which is in Wea ancestral territory, who had to declare a state of emergency over low, low water levels last summer, uh, there are studies that show that at the height of the uh, growing season, in-stream flows for uh, some of the tributaries in the eel watershed, that cannabis demands are about 120% of in-stream flows. And so what that means is uh, the amount of water cannabis agriculture in the region needs is 120% of the water that is in the river, right? So tribal nations, I think, in this region are incredibly concerned, right, uh, about contemporary water uh, uh, usage due to cannabis because of these historic legacy impacts, right? The moment of silence is over. And that was Dr. Caitlin Reed, Assistant Professor of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt, speaking on her brand new book, Settler Cannabis from Gold Rush to Green Rush in Indigenous Northern California. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Keppa Mele and Dr. Caitlin Reed. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Kupa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. The moment of silence is over. And for the innocent you can't justify Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.